I tell you, I have been immensely blessed, really enjoyed just uh, interacting with him via text and emails over the last few weeks, and I uh, did not know he had such a humorous side to him. You know, this morning he, he made a couple of jokes, you know, and I didn't know how to take that. I thought he was a very serious-minded person, but nonetheless, I'm beginning to acclimate. So this morning, let me just move right into my presentation about Heart Cry Missionary Society. As John mentioned, I've been working with HeartCry now, going on 16 years. The first 15 years, I had the privilege of working with about 28 to 32 missionaries in Romania, Ukraine, and Moldova. We had one in Serbia at the time, and now he's no longer with us. But it's been such a glorious privilege because, quite honestly, these men and women in Eastern Europe, I have not felt worthy to untie their shoelaces. They have lived very sacrificially. It's amazing how the Lord has used their humility, the grace of uh, just kindness, not to mention their resilience when it comes to preaching the gospel. And so it's been such a joy and a blessing to work with Heart Cry. Let me begin by sharing a few statistics with you. According to Joshua Project, there are 17,443 people groups in the world. From that number, there are 7,425 unreached people groups. Now, here's a side note. Now what they're doing is they're taking people who formerly had been exposed to the gospel as far as their nation is concerned, and today if there is less than 1% of the population that's evangelical or Christian, they are assessed now or they are listed among the unreached people groups. So, for example, France is an unreached people group. Denmark is an unreached people group. So now the unreached people groups are increasing, but yet at the same time, we're so encouraged to know that the gospel is circulating worldwide. Tremendously encouraging some of the reports that we're receiving. Presently, Heart Cry Missionary Society supports approximately 340 missionaries in 64 countries around the world. Now, as our brothers already mentioned, our primary reason for doing missions is not for man, but that God's name might be exalted, that he would be great among the nations, and that the Lamb would receive the full reward of his sufferings. I don't say that casually. I don't say that academically. Right now at Heart Cry, we have Monday through Friday a prayer meeting. We begin each day at 8 o'clock. I, as well as many of the other coordinators, zoom in to be a part of this prayer meeting. Heart Cry is increasing as far as staff is concerned, but they all meet in a small room, the men and women. And then we have the privilege of zooming in and being a part of what an independent fundamental Baptist friend told me one time, what he would classify as a red-hot prayer meeting. There is wailing. There is weeping before the Lord. There is earnestness. There is urgency. There is pronounced expectation. And I've been so blessed as Brother Paul Washer has led that prayer meeting to catch his heart his vision. There's a contagion about it. And every one of us are the beneficiaries of that. But I tell you, friend, if you can only be a part sometimes, and the pastors that I'm normally with will join, if I'm able to stay longer for meetings or whatever, I'll have them come and join us for that prayer meeting. It's rich, and it's made such a difference in my life. I believe God has honored that type of prayer. It's the effectual, fervent prayer of righteous men and righteous women that avail much. Now, we understand today, we strive to never forget that the first command of Christ is to love the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
So with that in mind, heart cries involved in multiple ministries. I have a very limited time here. Just bear with me for a moment. And let me begin here by sharing with you six distinctive ministries that heart cry is a part of presently. First of all is indigenous missions. We find that the financial giving of God's people go much further if we support indigenous missions. You say, well, what is that? It's people, men and women, that are native to the culture, people who have been converted in their country, and people that God make us privy to who have a theological bent that's compatible with ours. We know men that can provide oversight and accountability for these individuals on the mission field. And so as we do our homework, as we evaluate their personal integrity, their domestic integrity, and most importantly, their theological integrity, we feel led of the Lord to come alongside and support these men and women on the field. These six ministries that we're involved in presently is indigenous missions, theological training, Bible distribution, literature distribution, evangelistic tools, such will buy boats and bicycles and various other means to get them to different places to evangelize, and also church construction. I can't tell you how exciting it is right now to hear of different places around the globe that because of your giving, we're able to invest in these men in building these churches buying property very cheaply to erect buildings for the people of God to gather in is tremendously a blessing to us at heart cry. Now, I was wondering this morning, because I have so much information here, what perhaps would be most edifying to you as a faith family. And so I've chosen to give you our six core convictions of heart cry missionary society. Every one of us, were asked to to sign the doctrinal statement of the London 1689 Baptist Confession. That was no problem. We were not forced to do that. We all believe in that confession. And so we did that recently as a staff. But out of that, there comes these core values that we believe and we adhere to at heart cry. First of all, as we've already underscored, The chief end of all mission work is the glory of God. We're not in the business of promoting our own kingdom. We're not trying to make a name for Paul Washer or Don Curran or any other individual. Our desire is to make his name preeminent among the nations. So our greatest passion is that his name would be great. From the rising to the setting of the sun, Malachi chapter 1 and verse 11, we find our great purpose, brethren, and our constant motivation, not in man and his needs, but in God and his commitment to his own glory. To his own glory. This is important. You see, God gives us desires might be reciprocated back to him that we could show forth and showcase the brilliance of what Christ has done in the gospel for all people. Secondly, the greatest benefit to mankind can be accomplished through the preaching of the gospel and the planning of churches that preach and are governed by the word of God. I can't tell you in these days how much I have come to appreciate the importance of the local church. And yet in our society, increasingly, the significance of the local church is being dumbed down. We need each other. We need the interaction. Everybody comes to the church to provide something for someone else. And it's not about me, and it's not about you. Well, we believe that God, through the planning of churches, propagate his purpose and fulfill his pleasure throughout the world. 
While we recognize that the needs of mankind are many and his sufferings are diverse, we believe that they all spring from a common origin, the fall of man and the corruption of man's heart. So man desperately needs the gospel. Thirdly, every need of our ministry will be obtained through prayer. Now, we did not just take this from George Mueller. Paul was greatly influenced and inspired by Mueller's principle of faith. But in the word of God, we have our own consciences bound that we will not ask anyone individually or collectively for financial help. That's just the way God has led us to do it. We're not opposed to churches or mission agencies that would feel inclined to send out letters asking people to help them or to partner with them or to support a certain project. But that's not the way we feel like God wants us to do it. And the reason for that is we trust God to be our patron and that he will glorify himself through meeting our needs without any solicitation from churches or human beings. We may share our vision at times with others and even make known specific tasks which the Lord has laid on our heart to do, but we will not raise supports by manipulating our brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen carefully. If this ministry is of the Lord, then once again we believe he will be our patron. If he is with us, he will direct his people to give. If he is not with us, he will not, and we should not succeed. If we are asked with specific needs what our specific needs are, then we feel like we have the liberty of sharing what projects are coming down the pike or what mission stations that we should be supporting. We have no problem sharing a need if the question is asked but we're not going to volunteer that information to solicit funds from God's people. Number four, we never intend to enlarge our field of labor by contracting debts. We will not use the world's method to support the cause of Christ. We believe this is contrary to both the letter and the spirit of the New Testament. In secret prayer, God helping us, we will carry the needs of this ministry to the Lord and act according to the direction that he gives. Now, let me mention to you once again our prayer meeting. One of our great petitions when we gather together to pray is not that God would protect our missionaries from evil men. Not that God would protect their families. But one of the great petitions that we make is that God would protect heart cry from ourselves. Because you see, friend, at times, because of mood swings or different things of influence coming down the pike, it's easy to negotiate or to compromise. But we're constantly keeping at the forefront, God, please protect us from us. We don't want to make any move unless you hold over our being absolute sway in this direction based on the word of God. So that is our heartbeat. Number five, those employed full time by this ministry should be afforded that which is required to live with dignity. Let me explain. To neglect their welfare would give excuse for the ungodly to bring unjust accusations against the Lord that is either uncaring or unable to meet the needs of those he employs. To the same degree, those who are supported by heart cry, whether it's our staff or missionary shall not be given so much as to waste the Lord's resources, acquire luxury, and live above those 
who so graciously give to the Lord's work. You see, to seek wealth and luxury in the ministry is to deny the call. So you say, what is your perspective? Our executive board for Heart Cry tried to force Brother Paul. And Paul never told us this. One of the board members told me. Tried to force Brother Paul to take a salary increase. And in tears, on the verge of righteous anger, he said, brothers, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. That's the way the staff lives. We basically take the average income of a country, and that's what we seek to give the missionaries. Many times, it's right on the line of being economically stable. We want them to learn as we're learning here in the States to live by faith. The whole philosophy of heart cry is we want our people to live with dignity, but not in extravagance. Not in extravagance. So number six, our goal is not to enlarge ourselves or to become a key figure in the Great Commission, but to be faithful and obedient stewards of God. Listen, brethren. It is our desire to present our ministry in such a way that men may see our weakness and glorify our Father in heaven. Glorify Him for His strength, that they may see our inability and glorify God for His faithfulness. There has never been, and you've heard Brother Washer say this quite often, It resonates with him. There has never been a great man of God, but weak, faithless, pitiful men of a great God. And we seek to keep it that way. So I close with this. Prayer is the greater work in the kingdom. And when I'm going into churches for my ministry or for heart cry, this is the thing I'm like a a velvet battering ram with the elders especially. Brothers, you are not colossal preachers. It's not in our ability to preach. We desperately need to be a praying people. The prayer meetings are the catalyst for making the word of God effectual. We are not large, wise, or strong. We only exist by the gracious hand of God. We depend upon prayers. And I believe, once again, you can do nothing greater than pray until you've prayed. And you can do nothing greater than pray after you've prayed. Giving. I would encourage you this morning, don't even consider giving to Heart Cry Missionary Society if you're not giving to your local church and taking care of your pastor or pastors financially. Don't even consider it. Furthermore, before I step down, remember in regard to the Great Commission, just what part of that sacred statement do you not understand? Because either God has called you to go down into the well or to hold the rope for those who do. Amen. Can we pray together? <clears throat> Father, thank you for helping me with my voice. Thank you for your people, Lord, for this precious faith family. For these dear sisters and and gracious brothers and thank you for these kind elders, Lord. I pray that you bless this assembly. Thank you for the investments that they're making in the kingdom through heart cry. Continue to bless them. 
May Christ be preeminent in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. As you hear me preach oftentimes, I use various translations during my preaching. Basically, it's the Old King James, New King James, ESV, and NASB. I don't do it to confuse people, but rather for clarity's sake, okay? So if you would bear with me if there's maybe a little variation in a translation or scripture that I quote during the course of the message, but primarily I'll be reading and preaching from the ESV. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, We regard no one according to the flesh. For though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin for us, or to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's look to the Lord in prayer once again. Now, Father in heaven, we pray that your Son would have preeminence this morning. This is not a vain repetition. We pray that the Lord Jesus, through the working of the Spirit, would take the field. He would be exalted in our eyes. And we would recognize, Lord, that our greatest motivation, the supreme impetus for missions or evangelism, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please, Father, I pray that by your Spirit, that what we'll look at this morning would come in great power to the help of your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the text that we just read a moment ago is arguably the greatest biblical text on the subject of evangelism. You might find a better one on the topic of regeneration. But you would find it very difficult to locate a passage that covers so much of the essentials of what I would call Godward evangelism. It was not too long ago before I did a series for our Heart Cry missionaries, as well as a mini-series in our own local church back in Sheffield, entitled The Forgotten Factors of Evangelism. And the whole premise of the series was that, why is it that we're not seeing people converted today? Why is it souls are not coming to Christ? Why is it that we're not seeing testimonies of real transformation? And I know that grace is sovereign. I know that God must open the heart and grant repentance and faith. But I really believe that much of our lack of fruit in evangelism can be traced to the fact that we are neglecting or overlooking some vital ingredients when it comes to evangelism, such as the importance of sharing naturally our testimony. You have no idea the great weapon that you have available to you in simply sharing 
simply what great things God has done for you. But yet people keep their mouth shut. And even in the reform movement today, how often do people talk about their faith? We talked about the importance of persuasion, the art of persuasion. And Paul, throughout the book of Acts, how the Bible tells us that he went into the synagogue and he persuaded men. We talked about the importance of pleading. Recently, I read the testimonies of John Piper and Al Mohler, who came to Christ as a result of somebody with tears in their eyes, pleading for their soul. And people, namely those two men, came to Christ as a result of somebody taking the gospel and on the basis that the atoning beauties of the Lamb pled with them to come to Christ. There are many other areas that we listed as forgotten factors of evangelism. But it's interesting in the text that we just looked at, some of those factors are mentioned here. What I want to do this morning is I want to share with you, as I normally do, just three major points. Three things that I trust will be a source of encouragement to your own heart. First of all, I want you to consider with me what is the supreme motivation for missions and all of evangelism. I want to talk for a few minutes about gospel motivation. Gospel motivation. You'll notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, I'll begin, where Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, constrains us. It's interesting that Vincent in his word studies said the word, word constrain here means a shutting up to one line or purpose. As in a narrow walled road. In other words, the gospel, as we begin to contemplate it, hedges us in. It motivates, it constrains us to proclaim the good news. It becomes so insatiable, the desire that it produces, that we cannot help but proclaim Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, For he had made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And that alone, friend, when you plumb the depths of it, as Spurgeon said, is enough to constrain you to proclaim Christ. Listen carefully. Motivation is vital for sustaining evangelism. The reason that oftentimes our zeal in sharing the gospel so ebbs and flows is because as a deficiency of motivation. The Apostle Paul could fittingly bear the reputation of a soul winner. Why? For a winner of souls is not the product of what the Puritans call fits and starts. Oftentimes we'll come to a special meeting or we might be in a Bible study or a prayer meeting and we get pumped up, so to speak. From this day forward, things are going to be different. In an area of sanctification, in an area of commitment, and all of a sudden it begins to grow weaker and weaker until it completely fizzles out. I find in my own life that the more I relish in the atoning beauties of the Lamb, the greater constraint, the more sustained motivation I have in making Christ known to people around me. My brother Paul Washer has written a minimum of 2,800 pages on nothing but the gospel. This is an ongoing pilgrimage for him. It's what drives him more than anything else. I can speak from experience in listening to him talk, in listening to him pray. It's the atonement that drives him. Does it drive us? You see, Paul is not one that presents Christ when he feels the mood is right. The Apostle Paul. Nor does he witness when he confronts a crisis. You see, if subjective feelings and circumstances dictate his evangelistic appeals, 
His soul winning will be characterized by inconsistency and barrenness. But the love of Christ constrains. Interestingly, as you think on the text, you find that Paul's motivation did not come from without, but from within. Call it grace, call it a God-birth conviction, or even call it a God-given desire. But listen, friend, whatever it was, Paul never rested in his pursuit to win men to Christ. You see, and why did he do it? It all goes back to motivation. This was a very divine impetus that kept pushing him, constraining him to make Christ known. And you find it right here embodied in this brief text that we've just looked at. In the text, Paul gives us what is the heart and motivation of all gospel enterprise. The driving force is the atoning atonement of Jesus Christ. It stirs and sustains a love for Jesus and for souls like none other. Now, many of you have heard the story of the Moravians. And quite frankly, for years, I was enamored by their 200-year, 24-7, nonstop prayer meeting. At one time, they were the supreme catalyst for missions around the world. I was quite moved when I read the story, the account of that, of their prayer meeting. But have you ever considered those two men who sold themselves into slavery to go among a people to share Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord, what it was that drove them? Listen to this. These men by the name of Johann Dober and David Nishman made the sacrifice they made for gospel mission to the point that they gave up houses, lands, and family and made the ultimate sacrifice of giving their lives up once and forever came out of their study of the gospel. Of the gospel. Think about this. They had so studied, contemplated, and relished in the depths of the atoning beauties of the dying Lamb that they concluded, quote, if Christ paid such an infinite price to redeem fallen man, then no sacrifice is too great to reach them. So what happened? Listen to the account. As a result of their discovery, these men embarked on a risk-taking adventure. In 1732, the two young Moravian missionaries from Hernhut, Germany, sold themselves to a slave owner and boarded a ship bound for the West Indies to preach the gospel to the African slaves on the Caribbean islands of St. Thomas and St. Croix. As the ship pulled away from the docks, it is said that they called out to their loved ones, may the lamb receive the reward for his sufferings. I've tasted a bit of that, brethren. I know what it is to be manipulated to go on visitation. I know what it is to be manipulated to pass out gospel literature. It doesn't last. Moralism always falls far short of something that is divinely inspired. So what helps us to find this motivation? It's what Spurgeon said. You have got to take the initiative of plumbing the depths of the gospel. Every aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ gives greater incentive to make his name great. Let me explain further. You will find that Paul mentions a number of gospel themes that drive his evangelism. For example, look back at the text. Verse 14 underscores once again the love of Christ constrains 
It forces, it controls me. In verse 15, just to highlight these things, he speaks of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. It says that he died for them. In verse 15, there he highlights the resurrection of Christ. Once again, a facet of the gospel. In verse 18, there he embellishes the reconciliation that we have formerly as enemies with God, with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And then he speaks in verse 19 of imputed righteousness, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their right trespasses unto them. Note this, please. Once again, pardon my voice. It is in the grasping of and relishing in these rich themes that we are impassioned to make evangelism a priority. Don't ever think that because I've got a handle on John 3.16, although I understand 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that that's all there is to know about the gospel. Nothing can be further from the truth. Friend, as you begin to research and study closely by faith in a meditative way, imputed righteousness, substitutionary atonement, expiation, propitiation, the love of God, I'm telling you, you will never lack for motivation. Never. Sadly, there are many believers who have wrapped their minds around the enriching fiber of the gospel. Unfortunately, it does nothing for them except to give them the sense that they are part of the common pool of evangelicals who bemoan the fact that their churches are not growing. but know little, if any, motivation to share the gospel with their community. So how do we make this happen? How can we make these gospel truths a catalyst to faithfully drive our outreach? Let me suggest two ways before we continue. First of all, this is important, now listen. I believe that the gospel in all of its glorious aspects is the supreme motivation in igniting and sustaining evangelistic zeal. And here are two reasons why. Remember this. First, our zeal is founded on love. On love. Let me explain. Such realities as the Bema Seat of Christ, everlasting punishment in hell, Eternal crowns are legitimate biblical motivations to serve the Lamb. But they are more fear-based than love-based. Let me explain. For example, when these are our motivation, we witness for Christ out of the fear of not having our works pass the test of fire at the beam of seat or a fear over what lost men will eternally suffer or a fear that I may have no crown to lay at the feet of Jesus. Whereas when the beauties of Christ's atonement have ravished my heart, I find incentive, brethren, to share Christ not only with a have-to attitude, but I get to do it. I have the privilege of doing it. You see that? Furthermore, The gospel enables us to witness from an experiential vantage point. It's something that I've encountered. It's something that has touched me. Think about this. Unlike the judgment seat or the realities or horrors of hell or eternal crowns that have afforded me no spirit-given experience, on this side of eternity, 
I have been made to taste the transforming power of God in the gospel, and therefore I am driven, I am driven by the fact that Christ died for me. Died for me. Quite frankly, speaking to you personally, I'm moved when I think that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I'm inspired by the fact, very enamored, that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. But I'm invigorated to the core when I realize that he loved me and gave himself for me. I was an object of his love. How can I not help but tell people about him? Second, this morning, when we talk about effectual evangelism, we must not forget that not only is the gospel the best motivation, but we must underscore in passing the importance of divine intervention. Conversion, friend, is supernatural. I try to be so clever in my approach to sinners thinking it depended upon my style, my mood, my, my suave. And all I did is produce men after my own kind. I desperately need the Holy Spirit, and so do you. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. You see the importance of divine intervention. Paul says very simply in the phrase, and all things are of God. All this is from God, ESV. Now let me remind you, true evangelism is centered on God. He orchestrates things according to his own good pleasure. We must believe, brethren, in the supernatural element in evangelism. You see, if a man is a cessationist, it doesn't believe, mean that he does not believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. God regenerates. That's the ultimate miracle is for God to cause a man to pass from death into life. Regeneration is the greatest miracle of all. The thing I want to bring out here in passing is you find in the text that God is the one who is prominent in evangelistic work. Paul is engaged in this work. What a privilege. What a privilege. It's not an opportunity. It's a privilege. But Paul, while he's engaged in the work of reconciling sinners to Christ, he realizes that everything depends on God. What gives the apostle the desire to see men converted is his own conversion. You see, nature replicates nature. You can't share with men or give men something that you don't have. And this is important. The fact that Paul desires to evangelize is a tribute to the Lord of the harvest work in his own soul. See God, look at the text again. See God's work in the text. <clears throat> he says in verse 14, God enlightened Paul to see the love of Christ in his death. He was able to see that. Verse 15, God enabled Paul, enables us to no longer live for ourselves. This is the amazing thing. Listen, think about this for a moment. The great miracle of conversion is not the changes that other people see in you, but the changes that you witness in yourself. People go to hell in Reformed churches. Because it's easy even in this context to go with the flow and know all the catch words. You know what buttons to push and what buttons to stay away from. 
When I ask you deep down inside, is there a vacuum or is there reality? Think about this. God gave him and gives us the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 16. Verse 17. God made him and us new creatures. Once again, going back to the quote I just gave you, take a step back and look at your life and say, only God could have produced that. I could have never I had great role models around me, but I know the way I was. I know by nature the propensities of my own heart. God interrupted that. He has changed me. He has transformed me. Paul knew this personally. He knew the supernatural distinctive of God's work. Verse 19, verse 18. God entrusted the ministry of reconciliation to all who were reconciled. Verse 19, God has equipped all who has, He has made ambassadors with the message of reconciliation. And then verse 21, God made Paul and makes us consciously aware by faith that we're the righteousness of God in Christ. These are supernatural manifestations. Salvation is of the Lord. I love the words of Al Barnes here. Listen to him. Love this. Listen. This refers particularly, he says, to the renewing of the heart. God has done something. And the influences by which Paul had been brought to a state of willingness to forsake all and to devote his life to the self-denying labors involved in the purpose of making the Savior known. I love this part. Now listen to this. He deeply feels that the whole plan and all the success which has attended the plan was to be traced not to Paul's zeal or fidelity or skill, but to the agency of God. Paul stood, stood back and he looked at his life and he marveled. God has done work. So this is divine intervention. You remember that Paul commends the work of grace in the saints of of Thessalonica? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, by listing numerous evidences that affirm their election. And among those in verse 8, he says, For from you sounded out the word of God, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward, your fidelity toward God is known in that you spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything concerning you. The word, it's interesting, the phrase sounded out. It carries with it the effects of a trumpet being blown in a region that echoes from place to place. This is supernatural. So I close with this this morning. Here's another vital ingredient in effectual evangelism. And that is human cooperation. Human cooperation. This is where it falls on our shoulders, brethren. As I studied the text, do the work of an evangelist. It's not just for the elders. If you name the name of Christ... You have the privilege of doing the work of an evangelist. Look at the text again, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. This may come as a shock to you. Listen. While not a few believers have an aversion to hyper-Calvinism, it is possible to live like one. To not earnestly pray for sinners. 
to not earnestly engage sinners with gospel literature, to not share your faith with others. When a person lets his view of election silence his verbal witness, he has an imbalanced understanding of divine election. I remind you, brethren, dear brothers and sisters, we are Christ's ambassadors. We represent King Jesus. We stand on behalf of God. We plead in the place of the dying lamb. As former enemies of God, we have been reconciled. Therefore, we persuade men, and we cannot afford to be passive about it. As Watson, Thomas Watson said, idleness tempts the devil to tempt. I made my father-in-law so mad. He was dying for a year and a half with lung cancer. I told my wife, I said, I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to exercise risk-taking faith. She said, honey, that's between you and the Lord. I don't know what to tell you to do. Because her dad would react in anger. So I wrote him. Brother, we were talking about Jim Eliff. I wrote him a letter. I mentioned four or five things that were highlights in our relationship in life. Some of them kind of funny. And then at the end, I said, Jesse, I really would appreciate it if you'd read this, this little booklet here. I said, I love you. It's, it's best to make sure that you're a Christian. And I sent him Jim Ellis' little book, Wasted Faith. He got livid. He wrote at the top of the book and mailed it back to me. Don, you need this. He was so angry. Unfortunately, really only a few weeks before his death, he forgave me. But as far as we know, he died in his sin. But you got to take the risk, brethren. The atonement's worth taking the risk for. you got to do something. It's easy to support heart cry or missions, you know, to relieve yourself of the duty of doing that work of an evangelist. On this point, let me take the risk also of saying that if you're not seeing men come to Christ, it's not that you've depleted your fishing hole. And it doesn't mean that the last days are so dark that the prospects of conversions have left with the darkness. I love the words of John Owen here. Everybody talks about, I'm just blown away by his intellect. You have no idea how experiential he was in his walk with God. Some of the things he said, I'm telling you, they just rock your world. Listen to what he said. Ministers are seldom honored with success unless they are continually aiming at the conversion of sinners. What's the statement say? If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you reap so bountifully, you reap bountifully. But if you don't sow anything, you're not going to reap anything. In response to Owen's statement, Arashius Bonner said in his words for winners of souls, the resolution that in the strength and with the blessing of God, <clears throat> he will never rest without success will ensure it. It is the man that has made up his mind to confront every difficulty, whatever the obstacle is, that stands between him and evangelism, who has counted the cost and fixing his eye upon the prize has determined to fight his way to it. It is such a man that conquers. I love that. Cuts me to the core. But I love it. Here's my contention in closing. I believe we're too easily satisfied when it comes to witnessing the people. We don't know what it is to persuade men. And on God's behalf, to plead with sinners. We have a heart cry missionary in Canada. He's in a community of 5,000 people. 
He started a church there in Doketown, New Brunswick, Canada. His name is Dave Story. I've known Dave for 35 years. And I heard this story about Dave. I thought I knew everything about Dave's story. But I heard that David visited some people in that community a hundred times before they came to Christ. So I asked Dave, I said, is that true? And he very modestly said, yeah. Yeah. He said, Don, I don't quit unless somebody gets mad and says they never want to see me again. I keep going back. And he's seen a half a dozen UPC, United Pentecostal, Jesus-only cult people come to Christ. Not to mention of a church of 180 who personally has led 110 of those to Christ. Unbelievable. I think we're too easily satisfied. So here's my contention. The question we need to ask ourselves is what do we default to when there are no conversions in our ministry? Do we comfort ourselves with the doctrine of predestination? Or do we crawl up into the lap of election for consolation? Or do we begin with ourselves? Do we interrogate ourselves with the probing question, does the fault lie with me? Am I being as diligent as I can be in earnestly praying and witnessing for the conversion of sinners? While I'm fully aware that there are seasons that the Father has put in His own power, brethren, I don't deny that. We're to preach the Word and be instant in season and out of season. I really believe that we can see periodic conversions if we're diligent. As Spurgeon says, epistles of diligence of the king's household to regularly invest the gospel in sinners in our sphere of influence. So think about this. Dave's story, the man I just referred to, made the statement. Brother Don, God never gives an increase on what has not been sown. And that's why I'm emphasizing here, friend, human cooperation. Go figure. Could God save the world without you and I? He certainly could. But he's chosen to use you and I. Even the smallest of children, if they're redeemed, and the oldest of adults. The responsibility lies heavily upon your shoulders. Don't think about it. Brothers and sisters, let us believe God. Let's believe God by purposing as the ambassadors of Christ to take the message of reconciliation to lost men. Let us be gospel compelled, trusting him who is able to save to the uttermost all that come into God by Jesus Christ. And let us be diligent in our soul winning to bring many sons to glory that the lamb may receive the full reward of his sufferings. And as I take my seat, remember the words of John Owen again. Ministers are seldom honored with success, the success of seeing people come to Christ, unless they're continually aiming at the conversion of sinners. Shall we pray together? Dear Father, thank you for for your help. Thank you for enablement in spite of my, my weak voice. Thank you, Lord, for the promise that your strength is made perfect through weakness. I pray, Father, that you might use this word this morning as an encouragement to the saints Lord, may it propel us to do the work of an evangelist as ministers of reconciliation who have been entrusted with the word of reconciliation. 
to bring many sons to glory. May Christ receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.